Aussie here, and here's some guys who really f***ing rock, you know? I just can't remember who the hell they are. Oh, yeah, it's something about Topcast and pinball machines or something. Shaggy and Norm on Topcast. Now, where the hell is my guitar? You're listening to Topcast, this old pinball's online radio. For more information, visit them anytime. www.marvin3m.com slash topcast. We've got a great Topcast tonight. We're going to be talking with one of the founders of Data East Pinball back in 1986 that started today's current Stern company started out as Data East Pinball. Uh, this gentleman co-founded uh, Data East along with Gary Stern and he's going to talk about how he co-designed uh, most of the Data East and Sega games from 1987 up to about 1998. A really interesting story on how Data East, uh, Gary Stern's company got started in the pinball business. One of the few pinball success stories of the last 20 years where a company started up from literally nothing uh, to become, you know, today the only pinball company left in the world. Special guests, special guests, special guests, special guests. So I'd like to welcome Joe Camico to TopCast tonight. Joe is going to tell us about the origins of Data East and, uh, you know, some of the great stories about designing games from 1987 up to about 1999 when he left the company. And uh, he's, he's got some great tales to tell, and uh, we're going to give him a call right now on the phone and talk to him. Hello, it's Joe. Joe, it's Clay. Can you hear me okay? Clay, I can. Nice to talk to you. Yes, th- thank you very much for, for doing this. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Okay, so tell me how you got into, uh, how you first got into pinball. I know you've got quite a history. You worked at Williams. It looks like you worked at Game Plan and maybe even a little bit at Gottlieb before you did the, the Data East thing. What's your history here? How did you get started? Um, well, my father um, was a distributor of coin-operated games. And in 1963, when I was five years old, he went to work at a company called General Vending in Baltimore, Maryland as the controller. And from about the time I was probably about five, I used to go down with him on Saturdays, hang out and play games and take brochures and fold them up and put them in envelopes and do all kinds of things like that. I think the first operator show I ever went to was the Virginia Music Operator Show in Roanoke, Virginia, and I was probably seven or eight at the time. There were actually pictures of me pulling um, um, tickets out of a hat for the door prize. Did you win? Pardon me? Did you win the door prize? No, no, I was just, uh, I was just a, a little lucky rabbit that used to draw the numbers. <laughs> so, um, but I, I can just remember being around games almost as, as long as I can remember being conscious, so. So did you, uh, did you start getting into the, into the gaming business right out of high school or did you go to college? Well, when I was in high school, um, I, I worked for my father's distributorship. He went to work for Valley. And Valley had three distributorships. People probably don't remember them. Advance, which was run by a guy named Chet McMurdy in San Francisco. Joe Robbins ran Empire in Chicago. And Valley bought a distributorship called Robert Jones International, but they turned into the name Valley Northeast. Then my dad ran Valley Northeast. So all through probably about the time I was 16, um, I worked there, you know, summers and unloaded 
trucks and fix games and clean games and work in the parts department, do whatever I had to do, whatever dad wanted me to do to make a make some make a living. And then when I was in college um, in Boston, I started operating games. Um, first thing I ever owned was the Space Invaders. Actually, I used to have it up in uh, the Treehouse Tavern in, in around Booth Bay Harbor, Maine. I used to drive about three hours every uh, Saturday and would make my collection. And I paid off the machine, paid my taxes, and what was left I got to use to live on. Um, what was that Space Invaders the pinball or Space Invaders the video game? The cocktail table video game. And then um, I got really interested in pinball. I remember I, I think I was 16 years old. I went to the opening of Tommy uh, in New York. Um, met Anne Margaret and Elton John. Sally was doing, of course, Wizard at the time. And uh, just started getting really interested in pinball and video games. And when I was in college, I ended up opening up a chain of arcades. And I was looking at the games that we were we were buying at the time for the arcade. And I said, you know, boy, I can make stuff as interesting as this. And there was a fellow named Tom Doe who was working for Westinghouse Missile Systems. He was a programmer, and we started a little company called Logical Highs. And we sold the right of first refusal. We offered it to a Stern, uh, Midway, and Williams, and Williams uh, brought us under their wing. So at the time we, we, designed, we were designing a video game, I went to Williams and had an idea for a pinball machine, and as crazy as this sounds, I sold Williams their own title. Um, I sold them the right to make... Uh, a game, you know, the idea of doing a game based on Defender, and thus Defender Pinball was born, which is really probably the first game I had involvement in. And did you, were you, uh, what were you studying in college? Uh, just general marketing, business, communications. Did you ever finish up, or did this just get going? No, I, I finished my degree. And what what school was that? Curry College in Milton, Massachusetts. So then you started working at, the Defender came out about 1982, so you're basically working at Williams, you moved to Chicago. Well, Mike, Mike, our company failed, our first video game was really a stinker, and uh, Williams offered me a job in their marketing group, and and really just kind of doing things to look at games in the field, and went to work there in Chicago in 83, um, tried to work on marketing some games, and at that point in time, Video games are starting to really, you know, collapse. The video business imploded. Uh, Laserdisc games were coming out, but they really weren't particularly very good. Williams made one called Star Rider, which was really pretty dreadful, actually. It was a, a nice ride to the park, but it was, it was graphically attractive, but not much of a game. And um, Pinball had virtually shut down. I, I don't remember the name of the game. Maybe it was Space Fantasy or Fantasy. It was like the last game that, uh, that Williams had made, and then they shut the doors. And Luna Castro basically said, we need, you know, X number of units. Larry DeMar probably has a better memory than I do, with something like 3,500 or 4,000 to uh, get the doors open again. And it was pretty dismal. A lot of people had been laid off, and I hadn't been. And uh, Mark Ritchie was working on a game called Sorcerer at the time, and Barry Alsler was working on a game, and, and I got involved with it and named it Space Shuttle. And um, Mark Springer came down. He was, it was his first game ever to do art on it. Wanted to go back and do, you know, uh, three, you know, four-color art process in the back class, and um, uh, Mark was having trouble drawing the space shuttle where the tail was looking right. And Larry Demar and I went over to um, Toys R Us and bought a foam space shuttle and went back to Barry's office. And Mark was there, and we said, "Here, use this for perspective." And we kind of plopped it right in the middle of the playfield where the ramp was. And next thing you know, the game had a toy. So that's sort of how the little molded space shuttle toy happened. But um, 
you know, we pretty much told Mike if he had to bet the future of his company on one game, Larry and I begged him to do Space Shuttle. And uh, Space Shuttle had speech. Eugene Jarvis was back at, um, I think, Stanford at the time, working on an MBA. And we convinced Eugene to go back and make some sounds. Obviously, Eugene's famous for uh, Defender. And uh, made a new sound package for us, and we put speech in the game. And, uh, you know, I guess a star was born. The game actually made a lot of money. Now, did you have to get a license for Space Shuttle? No, there wasn't. We had contacted NASA and found out basically it was pretty much public domain. So there was no issues there because your your reputation as the licensing god is, I mean, it, it it's, it's you know, I, I thought this might have been the start of that. Well, I guess it was sort of an illegitimate start of it. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and um, then uh, Mike Stroll left Williams, and I departed not too long after him and spent a little time uh, over at Game Plan. Ed Sibble and I worked on the Loch Ness Monster which, unfortunately, um, they ran out of money on Cyclops before they got to that game. But it had a ramp, and it had speech, and it had a lot of things that, you know, games didn't have at the time. And then I went to work for a short stint at Gottlieb and for a premiere under Gil Pollock, and that was just nothing short of a disaster. Um, he and I had two dramatically different perspectives on what was a modern pinball machine. And uh, Gary Stern and I ended up starting with Shelly Sachs, his assistant at the time. Um, in his basement, we were pretty illegitimate. Our company was called Nuco. And uh, we started what became Daddy East Pinball. Um, we had both Daddy East and, um, I believe it was Konami at the time, looking to make an investment in us. And uh, Daddy East ponied up. The strategy was it would allow them to... Um, kind of smooth out the, 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 the business when they had a, a strong video game it would help their strong video game and when they didn't they would have an ongoing business you know they, they, they looked at Williams and said we can be that so that was sort of how the company started um, now how did you get I mean how did you meet Gary Stern I mean you said Gary of course as a teenager because my father is one of the biggest distributors of Stern in New England but um, actually Gary kind of came across he was working on Pinstar at the time with Steve Kirk, who uh, passed away last year, and uh, had seen the product I was working on with Ed Cibola and said, boy, this kid's kind of talented, I think. So uh, that's how Gary and I started. I mean, uh, I, I like to joke nobody would hire either of us, so we had to start our own company. So, hmm. And was it, I mean, when you started your own company, did you guys have a lot of money invested or just mostly heart and soul? Well, it was, it was sweat equity. Right. I mean, you know, right. Neither of us had very much at the time. I know Gary had come out of uh, his bankruptcy from Stern. You know, I'm not quite sure how much he had, but, you know, Ed Pellegrini certainly helped us a lot, and he put money of, his own money up. Um, Gary may have put some of his money in. I don't know. I had nothing at the time. And we just worked our butts off and slowly built a little company. What year was this? 1986. In September of 86. We were incorporated around the, somewhere between the 1st and 10th of November of 86. We showed our first game. I designed the game Thanksgiving Day. Literally, I was working Thanksgiving Day through the play field, or a good portion of it. It was up and playing a couple of weeks later. We bastardized or raped a Williams Road King for parts while we were building our own stuff just to get it up and playing. And we had our first game at the trade show that March, which was called Laser War. Originally, it was going to be a license of Laser Tag, which, of course, 
was a hot toy at that time. But Worlds of Wonder didn't want to do a deal with us, so we just made laser tag. So now the the laser war, you said that you bastardized uh, a Williams road cane to get it running. Mm-hmm. Was that, I mean, is that how the Data East board system, basically a clone of the System 11 board set, I mean, even the connector numbers are the same, and, uh, you know, you can literally take a Data East board system and plug it into a System 11, a uh, Williams System 11 game, and it uh, nearly works almost almost fine after you switch the game ROMs. Um, obviously, our, our, we weren't looking to reinvent the, the wheel at the time. We were looking to be, you know, do things that you could do, which is, you know, the basic Japanese style of create and improve. Pretty much, we needed a pop bumper, we needed rubbers, we needed stuff. We just bought some games and took parts. And people have patent protection. Gary and I were sure to stay clear where things were just, you know, go for it. We did. Looking back on that, you know, where you kind of mimicked the, the Williams System 11 board system, was that a mistake or a good thing, you think? It was a great thing. I mean, I look at Stern. Stern was a mimic of the Bally boards, right? Right, exactly. Uh, you know, look, it, it, it was our own original software, but, you know, a triad's a triad, you know. I mean, if you're going to, or a triad, if you're going to go try and, you know, fire off a solenoid, you know, you give it power and it goes boom. Um, obviously, we had to innovate and do things because they got stuff like a parallel wound flipper coil. We had to develop a solid-state flipper coil, which was an improvement on the parallel wound, and was patented. So, I mean, you know, that's how that's how the world works in business. Hmm. Uh, was it a mistake? You know, maybe we hurt a few people's feelings. Sorry, um, but you know, that's business. Did Williams people infringe them? If things are just out there and they're fair game, they are fair game. Did Williams ever try any legal maneuvers on you? Well, of course, we had the great pinball lawsuits of the nineties. You know, silly things like, you know, the, the word multiball, which was only, you know, a, a, a copyright, not as multiball, but only as multiball in a particular um, uh, font. But, you know, look, if you can't slow your competition down by making better games, well, throw throw uh, throw bombs at them. So we had our share of bombs. I mean, we even had things that, you know, we had vendors that were threatened not to do business with us. You know, certainly those are anti, those are monopolistic practices. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, it's just a pinball machine. Um, and they didn't have the, the legs to go the distance. Right. So did any of that stuff ever make it to court? No. No, nothing. So you mean they would just threaten and do a little dance? The lawsuits, they were, they were probably settled. Oh. And, uh, but, you know, you know, it was more of a nuisance. And, and honestly, when the lawsuits happened, we just worked twice as hard because it made us mad. Maybe we're just a teeny little company. You got to remember that. One of the things about being a small company, not having a lot of layers of fat, you can do things really fast. And that was one of the things they had a hard time comprehending or understanding. You know, if you if you sat me in at Cebola down, we could design a playfield in a day and probably have it running in two. You know, you know, the Williams style of creation was a lot of pontification. You know, a tremendous amount of trial and error. And when you don't have that time, you don't take it. So, um, yeah, it's kind of interesting. You know, I, I look back on those days really fondly and, and kind of actually laugh about them. They were um, they were an extraordinary time. Was there any particular patent that was just that, you know, you couldn't live without where you did have to settle with Williams and actually pay them something? No, I think, I think years later Gary did do the automatic replay percentaging patent. 
But um, can you live without it? Sure. Um, does it really affect your business? Yeah, not too much. Hmm. Was there anything that was, you know, if you didn't do this, you couldn't make a pinball? Nothing. Interesting. Yeah, I really like to think, you know, they, they've invented the best mousetrap, but that, that really was never a hindrance to us. I mean, that's the great thing about the patent system. Somebody comes up with something, and they have a patent, and they disclose their their methods of creating whatever they're they're making. And if you're clever and if you're smart, you'll work hard and come up with ways to go around that hmm. and create the next better thing. So in this first series of games, you have the Laser War, the Secret Service, the Time Machine, the Playboy 35th Anniversary. Was there any that was was like you were really particularly proud of that you know that you really just worked your butt off at and at the end of the day you said man this thing's awesome well yeah i think we we had lots of beautiful babies along the way i i would have to think my favorite games of the eras i mean certainly laser war was just a quintessentially wonderful pinball machine had pretty pretty simple rules that were nice and deep but not you know with the crazy depth that they have today you know, it was just a fun game to play. It was fun to lock up the balls and play multi-ball. It had a, you know, a really good hook to it. Um, in terms of a game that I was particularly proud of, I think was the game that changed the company or saved the company or, or made us truly legitimate. It had to be Phantom of the Opera. I mean, that was a game we really needed. It was solid. It worked well. It was beautiful. Paul Ferris's art was stunning. The sound was great. I mean, that game was just a milestone for us. Um, other games that were really important, Simpsons was, was, was really an important product for us because it was the first time we got over like 5,500 games. I think we did 5,501 Simpsons. And that game really legitimized the company. I mean, it really, really made us a, a true contender. And then, um, let's see what other games that I, you know, I loved Monday Night Football. I mean, it was a crazy apparatus of knocking the ball through the, through the, the, the goalpost. I mean, I'm not sure it worked so well, but it was a lot of fun when it worked. And then other games that I would have to say are milestone games are really collectible. Um, certainly Star Wars and Lethal Weapon and Jurassic Park, those three games combined, we did close to 30,000 games. I mean, I think we did uh, 9,500 Jurassics and 10,400 Star Wars and 10,350 Lethal Weapons. That one year, the company made twenty eight or twenty nine thousand machines, um, and then certainly, you know, the era after that, I I was particularly proud of. Um, maybe one of my favorite games. I loved the Space Jam. It was just a terrific game to play. And um, um, let's think, what else? Well, I love Starship Troopers. I thought that was just probably the most the best rule set we ever made. And then the game that really kind of cold cocked the industry. I mean, Williams was coming out with with the heralded Pinball 2000, and it didn't make nearly as much money as South Park. I mean, South Park showed what a really strong title, a toilet, a, 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 a Mr. Hankey, and a great title can do, and that came out earned, you know, the, the Pinball 2000 probably by double. Um, it's on a lot of reports I recall seeing. And then, of course, Gary's gone on to make some great product. I mean, Austin Powers was a good game, and he's done great with... Uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, for a little while he strayed away from licenses and then realized his roots and came back. Um, yeah, on, on the license thing... The, the glow balls and the black light, and that was kind of a funny gimmick. So. You mean on the, on the Viper? Yeah. 
but I mean, we made a lot of products. I mean, we made a lot of games. Um, I mean, I probably was involved with 80 pinball machines. Hmm. Now, backing up, your first three games, The Laser War, The Secret Service, and The Time Machine, were all unlicensed games. You, you know, they were they were all unlicensed. They were. And then you you went to the Playboy 35th anniversary, and that seemed like that really set you up for the licensing. Right, that, Monday Night Football, and then we just started licensing heavily, and it really helped our product sales. And that was just, was that was that something that you enjoyed, was getting the license? Oh, sure. You know, I have, uh, to this day, still wonderful relationships. I mean, if you look at the, the world of IGT before I left them back in the, in the August from a day-to-day standpoint, I mean... IGT heavily leveraged off of my relationships, you know, within the Hollywood community. And, you know, like, if you're going to buy a doll, a doll of a mouse, you're going to buy a Mickey Mouse doll, or are you going to buy a, uh, a, a generic rat? You know, licensing is, is a big player in all kinds of consumer products because people are comfortable with what they know. Hmm. Um, certainly... From uh, Gary's standpoint, it's a very important part of his business today because a lot of the games he makes goes to people's homes, and that's why you don't see a lot of our product even on the street today. I mean, you see a lot of you, you look up pinball stuff, and a lot of our games, because of the titles, ended up in people's basements. Hmm. Hmm. Now, was there any particular theme that was, or, or license, I should say, that was, you know? really had a good story behind it or was really fun to get or interesting or difficult to get? Since we had a great time. I mean, we were there so far on the, on the front edge of that title. Um, Monday Night Football was a lot of fun because I got to go to almost a Monday Night Football game in every city for a year um, from a personal standpoint. Um, in terms of, you know, we were very happy to get Jurassic Park. I mean, Williams wanted it desperately. And, you know, again, our, our relationships that we had with the studios were more important than the size of our company. Star Wars was another one. You know, Star Wars, we originally licensed ILM. It was going to be an industrial light and magic machine where it was going to have Willow and Indy and Star Wars. And, you know, Star Wars was a dead property at the time. People were not um, doing a lot of Star Wars trade. And then Topps Trading Company, IGT, or actually, what am I saying, IGT, Data East at the time. And then um, um, Louis J. Galoob, which was the master toy licensee before Kenner, all said, hey, to, to George, we think there's something here. Let's go back and try and reintroduce the brand. And in, in doing that, we really uh, put Star Wars back on the map. Hmm. Now, was there, um, you, you've also kind of got this reputation as a guy, the man of the paper napkin. Tell me about that. Oh, well, you know, I'm not the, the, the greatest um it, using CAD or some of the other things that guys did, but boy, you know, my creative times were normally never during uh, eight to five. It was late at night or coming out of the shower or whatever. And there are a lot of games that are designed, whether they be novelty games or slot machines or or uh, pinball machines, that started as a Joe Doodle and um, went from there. You know, at any game I ever designed, there's a basic concept of what it should be. And, and then it went from there. I mean, it was never just, you know, parts in a shoebox shaking around. But the paper napkin, certainly, you know, Space Shuttle was designed on the back of a menu from a place called Grover's Oyster House on Irving Park. And Larry Tamar, Eugene Jarvis, and I went out to dinner one night, and that's where that idea came from. That's where it started. 
Um, but yeah, there's probably there's probably been more than my fair share of, of, of doodles on napkins that became games. So guilty as charged. <laughs> I think it's great. <laughs> What's AutoCAD good for? Nothing. <laughs> well, actually, I wish we had had it when we started. I mean, everything we originally did was on vellum and was written with paper, and you know, it was amazing. Now, when um, when you got the financing and went ahead and, and called the company Data East, how much control did they leverage over you guys? Uh, a tremendous amount. Was it difficult? No. I mean, it was difficult at the beginning when we were succeeding. Hmm. But... Now, why did they pull out and, and, um, and Sega come in? Well, I think... They had, and again, I don't remember the story precisely, and so part of this is hearsay, part of this is foggy memory. I believe at the time, Mr. Fukuda had leveraged the company heavily from uh, into the 8- or 16-bit market, and as the consumer business changed, he kind of got himself caught with, um, well, you know, owing money to Sega, and I think we were part of the... Um, the, the uh, the, what was put up as, as capital for the purchase of you know, some of that home stuff, and when that didn't pan out, I think you know we were what uh, was, was given as partial payment hmm. to that debt uh, owed. Remember, we were a profitable company at that time. And were was was the management of Sega easier or harder to work for than Data East? Oh, they were different. You know, the, the biggest problem with, when Sega took over, you know. Sega was an interesting company that, as a big, large, multinational Japanese company, you know, every year they start the business plan with, we want to reduce our expenses by 10%. We want to reduce the bill of material by 10%. We want to reduce your staff by 10%. Well, that's good the first year. It doesn't work so well the second year, and it's really a, a, a bear by the third year. So you know, they really weren't investing in the business. Though they were invested in the business, um, you know, our bill of material, if you go back and look at a game like Godzilla, I mean, there are just simply no parts in that product. I mean, it was a ramp, a plastic head, a couple pop bumpers and a few things, but honestly, truly, um, it wasn't, it wasn't good. It wasn't where we really needed to be. But one game that you really did pull the rabbit out of the hat on, that was a Sega brand name, was Apollo 13. Now that game's got some money in it. That game, well, well, then that was right at the transition. That was right as the company was being purchased by Sega. You could see, I think, actually, there may have been, you know, clearly there may have been two different back classes. There was maybe a Data East and a Sega version of it. And that game was, well, you know, I, you, you know, I've made so many games. That game was simply a technological tour de force. I mean, if you've played it and you've had all 13 balls at one time, I mean, it certainly... Um, was the most amazing, unique multi-ball experience that there ever has been. And the game originally had two spinning discs right in the middle of the play field, so not only did you get the 13 balls, but those balls were just flying all over the place. So that was a very, very exciting product to make. Uh, it really was. It was really, it was really a thrill. Great game. I, I, I own that game, and, and people come over and they say, what do you mean 13-ball, multi-ball? And I set it up for them. And then the thing clicks off, and they're like, oh, my God. Yeah. It, it's a really exciting thing. And I'll tell you another game that we did which had a really fantastic device, and that was designed by John Borg, and that was um, Twister. Twister had that spinning disc that had the magnet in the middle, 
mm-hmm. and then it would start to spin, and the balls would go as a cluster, and then they'd kind of explode like a little you know, neutron bomb, and the balls would go everywhere. You know, I, I, I'm very proud of the accomplishment of you know, starting a pinball company from scratch. I don't think anybody ever made one that succeeded. Um, it lasted as long as us, with the exception of maybe the Gottliebs or Maloney with Bally. And to think that we're the only company left in really the world, um, 20 years strong. And, you know, it's just a, it's something that I really have a tremendous amount of pride in. Now, how much influence did Williams, you know, because at the time, Williams was pretty much the industry leader as far as sales go. Yet, how much influence did they have, like, on your design? Like, I've heard people make comments like, um, you know, uh, like Last Action Terminator, for example, where it's kind of a, you know, it looks a lot like Terminator 2 or Batman Forever looks a lot like Star Trek. If you want to be general and go, gee, a long shot that makes an orbit, you know, is particular to any particular game. You know, we had a big brouhaha over Lethal Weapon and, and, and Terminator. Well, if someone said, oh, well, you know, this shot goes and makes a loop and that shot goes and stops at the top corner. Okay, well, are they the same shot or are they different? You know, uh, you know, there are only so many places you can put a loop shot. There are only so many places you can put the sweet shot of a ramp. But, you know, if, like any good company, you know, if people are buying, uh, double bacon cheeseburgers, you probably don't want to make double bacon fish burgers. <laughs> and, um, you know, we, we weren't in the business. You know, some people go, oh, my God, this is an art form, and this is this and that and everything else. Real simple. You know, if there's pinball, like thought machines, like automobiles, like clothing, it became a style business. And if ramps are the style, then you make games with ramps. If uh, somebody's making a game that's got uh, a long ramp shot, you know, certainly we all drafted on each other. I mean, certainly when, when Williams had a really successful game, and they couldn't fill market. Everybody else was selling market behind them. Gottlieb did that with stuff like uh, uh, my, the Miami Vice ripoff they did years ago. Um, you know, it just depends where the market's going. Um, did we look at the market and go where things are? You betcha. You know, you'd have to be a moron not to. You know, if, if, if Ford and Chrysler spent a little more time looking at what the Japanese were doing, they'd probably make better cars today. Um, so, you know, if someone wants to go, gee, some of our things could could have been derivative because somebody had a long ramp shot and we had a long ramp shot, well, guilty as charged. You know, we're in business and, uh, you know, the company's still in business and still making good, fresh, unique product today. But to say, you know, something as trite as this game has a loop shot and that game has a loop shot, you know, I'll give you 50 games to have a loop shot. It's silly stuff. It's silly talk. We'll be back after this message with Joe Camico from DDE slash Sega slash Stern to tell us some more about his, uh, his pinball stories. Hey, George, I just had to call and tell you about this really great magazine I got. It's called the Pin Game Journal, and it's the only magazine dedicated totally to pinball. It's got great articles and interviews with designers and everything. No, George, I won't loan you my copy. Who knows where you'll take it to? You're going to have to go to PinGameJournal.com and get your own subscription. But George, the guy says that each issue will get mailed whenever he feels like it. What's the deal with that? All right, George, i got to go. Got to call Elaine and tell her. I can't believe how good this magazine is. Okay, we're back with Joe Kamenko 
from DataE slash Sega slash Stern. Now, another thing that you guys really innovated was the dot matrix display. I mean, you were way ahead of the curve, uh, way ahead of Williams, that's for sure. What done the bigger one early on. Um, again, it was, and, and actually, the dot matrix display almost made its premiere on Simpsons, um, which was the game before Checkpoint. Um, we almost did that. We just, you know, the, the management of Data East at the time had said to me and Gary, you better be right about this and it better be, and it better work because your feet are in concrete. And, you know, if you're wrong, it's going to harden and we're going to throw you in the river, is basically what they told us. So to be a little more cautionary, um, Gary and I, or to take a little more caution, Gary and I held back another game to make sure it really, really, really worked. And, uh, you know, eventually we had to go to the larger displays because Everybody else went there, but we did it first, um, and we were pretty excited about it. I mean, and uh, checkpoint, checkpoint. You know, it's another. You know, you know, again, you're jogging my memory of all this different product. We made so many games. Checkpoint was a fantastic game, and where checkpoint was unique, checkpoint was the first game that had the plunger and the auto shooter, so you could plunge a ball into play. But when multi ball happened, because you didn't have to worry about reloading balls and relocking balls. And everybody's state stayed the same. Um, when it was time to have multi-ball play, you know, the game got excited, screamed red line, and kicked all those balls into the play field. Um, that, that was a feature we innovated, got patented, that actually I think we licensed to Williams. And a lot of people used for a long time. I mean, that, that, that one feature truly changed as a game designer and for all game designers how they came up with rules and how games worked and, and behaved. Now, Fantastic. did the dot matrix display thing really expand the time that you needed to bring a game to market? A little bit. I mean, we had to create art for that, but we were doing stupid art in, in 16 segments anyway. Um, it made it made more, there was more programming involved, certainly. I, I, did it expand it? Nah, not that much. I mean, if somebody says it did, I don't know. I it, it wasn't that dramatic. I mean, we, we sometimes got a little carried away or did video loads or stuff like that. What Dot Matrix did, it did two things. It obsoleted everything before it. And that, that, there were several growth cycles in the history of pinball. You know, you went to, from lights on the back glass to score drums. From score drums to, um, a numeric display. From numeric displays to alphanumerics. And in each one of these opportunities, a couple things happened. First off, the score expanded, right? You know, all of a sudden you went from six digits to seven digits. All those other games you couldn't score a million on. So they were really obsolete almost overnight. Hmm. Um, the dot matrix display did that too. It, it really took all the pinballs that were in the market at that point in time, made them all obsolete. Hmm. Now, tell me about some of these one-off games like you did an Aaron Spellings game and you did some other one-offs what was the history behind those well the the one-off game we did for Joel Silver was as a favor to Dick Donner because we were doing um, uh, Tales from the Crypt and we ended up getting the Lethal Weapon license that nobody ever thought Mel Gibson would give us likeness to a game and Dick Donner kind of well sort of twisted his arm the Aaron Spelling thing was just Probably something we should have never done. It was after the uh, Joel Silver game was in the Variety magazine or Premier magazine. Candy Spelling said she really wanted it done for her husband. 
and we came up with a ridiculous number, like a quarter of a million dollars to make the game, and she came back and said, where should I send the check? So should we have done it at the time? Nah. It was a waste of our resources and our energy and our time. My wife ended up with a plate with a, with a, with a part on Melrose Place, which was kind of fun. And, uh, you know, it's just one of those things that just sort of happened as life went along. And it was the right thing at the time. Looking back at it now, it was probably a stupid thing to do. Now, what about the the Mad and the Richie Rich? Was that a game? We, Richie Rich again was part of that whole Joel, Joel Silver relationship, but um, we made the that for the movie, and it was while we were doing Lethal Weapon and other things with them. Mad Magazine, we were going to do a Mad Mad Machine. We had started to develop it. Was going to have sort of like a Rudy face on it. I actually have the backlash for it still, and. Um, Gary got very afraid that it wouldn't have any appeal in Europe, and we killed the product. Hmm. So that's the history behind that. Now, what about uh, Mini Viper and Irons and Woods? Well, Mini Viper started out as a uh, as a product again to go. You know, is there any validity to pinballs are too big or too heavy? And obviously, after we made it, we realized now nah, it was pretty. It wasn't worth doing. And Irons and Woods was, again, another concept of something I was screwing around with to try and come up with another way to have a different type of rule set that played sort of this, this skins golf game, you know, with the strength of all the stuff like Golden Tee Golf. We were trying to see if we can come up with something that, that worked. And it was an interesting concept. I mean, it's an interesting game. It was very attractive. But at the end of the day, it really wasn't the right thing for us. So, But, you know, we were trying. You know, there, there's got to be a little R&D in the in, in you know that goes with the D. There's, there needs to be some R every now and then. Hmm. Now, was Mini Viper any sort of reaction to William Safecracker? Sure it was. Okay. But we didn't think Safecracker was done right. We thought it was a little too stubby and everything else. But at the end of the day, when we created it and we took it out into the field, the operator didn't care and the player didn't care. And you know, Williams was off base, and we realized it quickly. And just you know, so what we did, we actually used it as a test for the Viper theme to see if the Viper theme would carry. And Viper was one of the first games we tried to take to the to the home marketplace because there were, you know, a lot of Viper owners. They had Viper um, uh, conventions, and we figured, well, maybe we can try and expand our market down. We know Williams had had some success selling some of the um, Corvette games, the Corvette owners. So and the Viper owners were a little more loyal and had a little more more money. So it worked a little bit. Kind of opened Gary's eyes up to the home business. On Last Action Hero, well, did you have to work with Arnold Schwarzenegger at all? We did. And was he easy or hard to work with? He was very nice. His head kept getting bigger and bigger in the back class, but you know that was one of those things. The script was great, the director was great, everything looked great. The movie just sucked. But those are the risks you take. We thought we had the two big movies of the summer. We only have one. Well, the Jurassic Park, I mean, that's actually, a, a, I mean, not only a great theme, but that, that game came out really well. It was a great game. And, and the dinosaur that ate the pinball was, again, another real marvel. You know, we had a few technical problems early on it, on with the, the, the real version of it. We had to go back and add a spring to it because the motors just could not handle how much use it did. But it was a really fun game to play. Graphics are great. The, um, I don't know if you ever played it where you got down to the meltdown mode where the game kind of just, has this crazy nutty, and it was again. That was the first game that had a uh, six ball trough. Again, you know, we were innovating ahead of everybody. Hmm. Hmm. Now, 
Ed, Ed, now I don't know if I can say his name right, Ed Sabula? Sabula, mm-hmm. What was, I mean, he came from Game Plan, but he had been around in pinball a long time, right? Sure, he was a Chicago coin, and you know, Ed just passed away back in November, and Ed was just a wonderful friend and a great mentor. And, uh, you know, it, you know, if it wasn't for Ed, I don't think uh, Stern Pinball would be in business today. I mean, he saved us. It, was he like the guy that turned, you know, your paper placemats into reality? Most of the time. I worked with Joe Bosser once or twice and John Bork once or twice. And I worked with the guys to tweak their games, too. But but Ed and I were sort of a, a yin-yang. You know, I'd, I'd draw something up and he'd go, okay, here's what we can make out of it. So we, and we went back and forth a lot. We were just, uh, we had a great relationship. He was one of the greatest men I ever knew. When you were working at Williams and then you went to, to Data East and you started this company and, and you were, you know, basically, you know, you're working in their backyard and, and their, in their product line. I mean, did that stress your relationship with any friends that you had over there? All of them. <laughs> you know, but then again, every now and then, you know, you call somebody up and go, "Hey, I need a, I need a rubber for some flippers because we don't have any. We're starting the company, and you know, a bag would find their way to you." You know, like we were all just trying to make pinballs. You know, the, the the big guys at the top of the companies, you know, got their underwear in a bundle. But honestly, you know, early on, before Pat Waller had a relationship with uh, Williams, he was helping me and Gary build our first games. When Larry had a, had taken a hiatus from Williams, he was helping. You know, and it's funny, you look at all the guys today, like Steve Ritchie and Pat Waller and all the ex-Williams and Gottlieb people that are all employed by this company. Um, it didn't turn out so bad for any of them, I guess. Hmm. You know, again, you know, being young, being excited at the time, I guess there were a lot of emotions from a lot of people, but most of it pretty much unfounded. Now, how did you find, you said Pat Lawler was helping you. How did you find him? Because his first game at Williams was like 1988, so this was prior to that? Yeah, well, Pat, Larry, and I were all on a bowling team. So we knew Pat from there. And was Pat... And with Larry on uh, a game in his basement. Was Pat always into pinball? Creative game designer. I have immense respect for his skill. Was he always into pinball, or you guys kind of dragged him into it? Well, I think he was always in the pinball, but he had done video games and other things before. Hmm. But Pat, Pat's a really, really brilliantly talented guy. I mean, his new game family guy, I think, is probably the best thing he ever did. I think it's really outstanding. Yeah, I agree. I think that's an amazing game. And it's very funny. I mean, I think you know, most, most people haven't realized how good this game is. It really is one of Pat's best pieces of work. Yeah, it's um, a friend of mine uh, says this, and, and he really he says it with a totally straight face, and he's probably right. He says it's the funniest pinball machine ever made. Yep, it is. I mean, I, I would think South Park is right there with it, but I think you know their their speech is so expanded with their new hardware system. There's just so much speech, and it. it's just it's just terrific all the way around. If I could back up back to Time Machine, what was the thinking behind that game? I mean, I. I, that game is, I think it's a really cool game, how you've got the chime unit inside. In a solid-state game, you got the chime unit when you go back to the 50s. And, you know, the only problem we have with the, with the game, the guy that made our, our, our ramp, we couldn't afford to do an injection-molded ramp. So the little ramp on the left, some of them all got a little stuck in it from time to time. But um, that was just a really fun game. And going back to the whole 50s mode, you know, we were playing to the pinball geek, which, you know, there were a lot of them at the time. That was just, it was just a... 
you know, I, I, I got myself on the back. It was just a clever concept, and it was nicely executed as, you know, we, we played the different music from the eras and gave it a different feel. And you felt like you were accomplishing something as you went back. Now, did you have to license any of that music? No, it was just all original stuff. Just, you know, you know in, a, in a style. Right. 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 Now, well, you said that in Monday Night Football that you went to a bunch of Monday Night games for like a year? Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean... It was, it was the 20th anniversary of Monday Night Football. So in every city, they had a big press release and a big press party. And the pinball machine was at every one of the press parties. And you got to you got to tag along for that? Yeah, that's one of the little little perks of <laughs> of the time. And did you meet the you know the 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 talent to Monday night? Oh, we did. You know, we we met uh, Frank and Al and Dan, and uh, got a chance to meet Pete Rozelle when he was still commissioner of the NFL. Went to the ABC affiliates meeting. It was just it was just a fun magical time. Now, did those guys play pinball at all? Well, they all got one, I think. So, yeah, hopefully, they're playing it still. Now, were you pretty were you pretty liberal about passing out machines to celebrities? Ever? No. Was, you know, Gary's the cheapest guy you'll ever meet. I mean, so it was. It had to have a, a a reason. We had to be getting something for it. I mean, certainly, you know, everyone knows it's a real hoot to be on your own pinball machine. So it was just, uh, you know, how can we best leverage that? Now, how about you? Did you amass any collection during this time? Well, you know, at one point in time, I had probably about 60 or 70. But when I moved from Chicago to a smaller home in Reno, um, I donated, I either gave them to friends or I donated most of them to um, charities. Hmm. So I probably have about 10 games left now out of my collection. So what 10 did you keep? Let's see, what do I have? I have uh, Space Jam and South Park. And Twister and Lost in Space and uh, Starship Troopers and Viper and you know you know a lot of the games close to the end. Um, you know I loved Hook. I thought Hook had one of the best ramps. Timmy Seckle did that. That was a great game. But you know the problem with pinball, unlike postage stamps, <laughs> you know it's just really hard to collect a lot of them if you're going to have any room for anything. Right. So, uh, you know, at that point in time, a lot of there are a lot of nice charities in Chicago that that benefited. And probably, I don't know if you are aware of this. One of the other great things we did with uh, Mike Toller, we called him Duffy, Duffy Toller, and Neil Falconer. You may not be aware, we created a sip and puff pinball machine. When we had our our pinball machines and we had the solid state flipper, um, we adapted a sip and puff apparatus. We had actually made one for Christopher Reeve. So he could play pinball hmm. by blowing and sucking air on the tube. So, I mean, we, we did that for uh, the Cincinnati Shriners Hospital and a bunch of other little things. Um, those are things people probably aren't aware of, stuff we did. And how many of those did you make? Probably three or four. Hmm. Now, on the Solid State Flipper, what brought that whole thing about? That was brought about by the loss by, you know, Williams giving us notice that they had gotten a parallel wound flipper coil. And, um, right, everything was series wound before that, and then round F14, they converted to this parallel wound system. And then uh, they got a patent on it, and we had to invent a better mousetrap. And we did. Now, before... It happened, if you remember, and the stroke switches would break. Right. And then your coil would burn up. 
you know, we, we hurt ourselves and help the operator at the same point. We stopped selling parts and we stopped selling coils because we literally, they stopped burning out. When was the last time you saw a burned out flipper coil on a pinball machine? Right. The only reason flipper coils ever burned out was the end of stroke broke, the 50 volts would go on and it would fry the flipper. doesn't matter if the end of stroke breaks anymore. You never, ever have fried flippers. Think about that. When was the last time you saw a fried flipper? Yeah, and a solid-state flipper, yeah, it's like next to never. Right. Now, one thing that happened right before this, your solid-state flipper was the Jaeger flipper. Tell me about that. Well, that was really the same thing. It is the exact same thing. Yeah, it was just done without circuitry. I mean, off the board, but that was that was really the solid-state flipper. Right, because it was a single-wound coil. Yeah, single-wound coil, but instead of using a board... You were you were you were still kind of using a mechanical method, right? But the 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 end of stroke played hardly any part in it. It was just the end of stroke was there just to um, you know protect and give you a second way to cut the power off. It was all done with timing with a little circuit board, and that was the advent of the solid state flipper. Hmm. Now, when Williams went to their solid state Fliptronics system, did you guys? Try and sue them? Pardon me? When Williams went to their solid-state flipper system, you know, their Fliptronics system, did you try and sue them? I don't think so. You know, you know, it, it, it's not worth, you know, what are we going to put it out of business? I don't think so. <laughs> I, don't, I don't believe we did anything. I, we may have licensed it to them. Again, I don't recall. But, you know, at some point in time, an agent taunt started to occur. Now, what brought that about? Well, when, when you have enough lawsuits, to, you, you start to have the taunts. <laughs> <laughs> or when businesses don't become as important to the core business of a company. Right. Now, why did you leave Sega, you know, in the, in the late 90s? Well, you know, look, I had been there at six, for 16 years at that point in time. And the business was showing, you know, uh, a decline. Um, Gary was talking about buying the company. The company really wasn't big enough for both of us to, you know, take the kind of salary out that we had been drawing up to that point in time. And, um, you know, I, I had an offer that was made to me, you know, in the slot machine industry from IGT, and it seemed really interesting to me and intriguing at the time. And I thought, boy, what a what an interesting opportunity. And sometimes you just got to just go... You know, I thought my skill set would, would serve me well in a different industry that had a lot of similarities, and, and that's what I did. So that was a smart move for you? It was a great move. It was a great move. You know, ITT is an extraordinary company. It was a great experience for me, great experience for me. And, you know, to this day, Gary and I are very close, and we talk a lot about the pinball business, and I do things I can to help him, and, and it's just... Uh, you know, it was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. Now, are you still at IGT? I am, but I'm on a, in, a, in a role as their chief creative officer. I really don't do any day-to-day things any longer. And is there, are you still having fun with it? Yeah, very much. Um, I mean, again, it was a great business, and you know, the company's gone through tremendous growth. And you know, during my tenure, uh, a lot of good reasons for that, and I like to I hope I was part of that that growth and um you know at this point in time you know there are other things i'm, I'm looking to do in my career i'm actually uh, currently writing a broadway musical so hmm. i guess that's what's next for me 
Yeah, because you kind of took the whole licensing theme of the of the pinball stuff and kind of applied it to slot machines, and that really hit a home run, right? It sure did. I mean, it was uh, tremendous success in that in that arena, and then everybody started, you know, following suit. So obviously, you know, it lost some of its luster, but you know, it, I, I, I had had a great run at ITT. It's a terrific company, well managed, and uh, you know, can't say enough great things about them. Now, was um. When you were when you were at IGT, now you had Williams again as your competition once more. Except that was the big company this time. Right, but I mean, how did this feel where you were basically deja vu? Oh, it was a hoot. I mean, it was just, uh, you know, I, 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 we got quite a few chuckles out of it. And, you know, this time I was the 800-pound gorilla. But the great thing about the 800-pound gorilla working, working with me was, um, you know, we worked like a very small, nimble, fast company. So, I mean, it was a pretty lethal combination. I mean, ITT's growth under my tenure was really quite explosive. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because IGT was bringing a lot of lawsuits in the in the early to mid-90s against Williams for their, for their real slots. Uh-huh. And won, as a matter of fact. Yeah, but in a lot of ways that almost screwed them up because it forced Williams into, the, like, the video slot stuff. Yeah, and then IGT had trouble in that arena, you know, Somehow, by Williams doing all of that and them suing Williams, heck, I ended up with IGT because they needed me. So, I mean, it's very serendipitous and pretty funny. But at the end of the day, um, you know, it's uh, I think there's detente in that business these days. And I know Williams and IGT enjoy a, a really nice relationship um, as, as competitors and friends. And uh, for me, it was really kind of fun to be able to go back and, you know, take a few swings of the plate against my old company. Um, and I love Williams. I mean, make, make no doubt about it, Williams gave me my my first real job. Um, I will always be proud to say I'm a Williams alumnus. Um, I l- learned and, I, you know, I look at Steve Ritchie and Larry DeMar and Eugene Jarvis and the uh, a real expanded, you know, gang of people that really did so well at Williams under the Mike Stroll era, and we all learned in this amazing environment. And all of us have gone on to a great level of success. So, um, boy, what can I say? You know, uh, you know, I'll sing the Willie Fight song. It, it was a great company. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really come full circle because, like, when in 1999, when Larry Demar left Williams and, and opened LED, then they're basically now working with you at IGT selling their ideas to you guys. Yeah, that wasn't by accident. So, and and Eugene was there for a period of time. So, you know, look, the talented people in the industry have always kind of clung together. Um, we all recognize the innate talent that we had at Williams. I mean. The amount of talent that was in that building at one point in time could have been anything. Could have been the biggest video game company in the world. Could have been the biggest slot company in the world. Um, I don't think the management recognized what was there and, and drove a lot of the talented people away. But, um, yeah, it's kind of funny how that happened, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's in- incredible how it's just like full circle. Yeah. Now, when Williams came out with the Pinball 2000, did that catch you guys at Data East or Sega at the time by surprise? Not at all. I mean, we, we knew something was coming like that, and we just felt that we, we would prefer to make a mechanical action pinball. And honestly, the first time I saw Pinball 2000, I was pretty sure it was going to fail. You mean it was just too much money? No, it was 
too heavy to move. <laughs> too heavy to move. It was too heavy to move. I mean, have you ever tried to carry one or move one? Oh, yeah, yeah. They're monsters. It's impossible. Now, maybe their concept was at the time, you won't have to move it. You'll replace the side, and you'll do all these other things. But, you know, then again, it was dark. It was hard to follow the ball. So, you know, we, we were pretty happy to put South Park up against it. And at the end of the day, I think our decision was right. I think their other Achilles heel was, you know, it was based on a PC system that was constantly going to be outdated. And uh, it was really an Achilles heel. But, oh, boy, it was a heck of a try. I give him credit for that. It was really uh, a great novelty. And it was too damn expensive, too. So you weren't impressed by the system at all? Oh, I was phenomenally impressed. I just, uh, I'm not sure if I, had, if, I, if I had tried, I could have even made something like that. But, uh, you know, I just don't think it was the right thing for the marketplace. Do you think that... All their eggs into one basket, and unfortunately... In doing that, they, they kill the rest of their, their, their... It should have been an extension to the product line as opposed to all or nothing, and it became all or nothing. You know, Williams never tried to operate on an economy of scale. Williams probably could have been in business if they had called Gary Stern and said, look, we're going to shut down our manufacturing. Let's all use the same parts. You build our games. We'll keep our brand. We'll keep a couple designers, and there could have been a Williams product, but it was all or nothing. A lot of egos there. Hmm. Do you think that Gary is Gary's current path is the is the right path? That, so he's doing the right things. Mechanical action pinballs where it's at. So you don't see him changing the display or changing anything really. Well, I think you know he'll he'll eventually one day freshen up the cabinet or do something or you know you know Gary's problem is copper goes up every year in in price. You know, there's, at some point in time, you, there's, there's nothing left you can take out. You know, there are no slam switches anymore. Okay, you can put one in if you want, but at the end of the day, there's, there, you run out of places to cost reduce, and the basic factors are, you know, next time there's a spotted owl that, you know, poops in the woods, you know, wood prices may go up 15%. Or when there's a hurricane and all of the Gulf Coast gets wiped out, all of a sudden you can't get plywood, and wood prices go up 40%. You know, these are the, the these are the, rea- the realities that Gary has to fight with to keep his business intact. You know, he's working on smaller margins all the time, and you know, he doesn't do it for fun. He does it to make a, a living, as do all the people that work there, even though they love it and it's an art art form and every, anything else you may care to call it. Do you think he can keep it up? As long as he wants to. Um, you know, I, I hope at some point in time. Somebody with deep pockets that truly loves pinball comes in and buys the company from him because, you know, Gary at some point in time is going to want to retire and enjoy his life. Hmm. I mean, does this take a lot of heart and soul out of Gary? I mean, this whole process. Oh, Gary loves it. I mean, Gary, Gary is Mr. Pinball. He has been his whole life, and he will be his whole life. Have you thought of coming back to uh, back to pinball? Well, I, I'm actually designing a, a game that Edsible and a few others have all participated in, kind of a last hurrah game that is um, uh, was actually designed for the 20th anniversary of the company. It will probably come out for the 21st based on timing and licensing and other things. But um, no, no, I wouldn't wouldn't consider it. You know, my, my life is somewhere else. You know, I, I, it's, it's a chapter that I look fondly back on. But it's just a chapter now. I mean, it's, you know, I will always be a founder of the company and um, always look fondly on that. But there's just, there are other things in my life that I need to do and, and 
you know, I've, I've climbed that mountain. Hmm. Were there any processes in during in you know during the nineties, like when we were selling these machines? Any anything that you wish you had done a little differently? Well, I wish we'd had better mechanical engineering. I think we would have sold a lot more games. I mean, things like Jurassic Park early on, you know, the dinosaur didn't work as well as it should have, and you know, had it worked better, we probably would have sold fifteen thousand. I think we were a little aggressive and what we wanted to try and achieve and what we could actually create. But, no, would I, would I do anything differently than we did? No. No, I mean, I, I, uh, I'm very proud of what we accomplished and, and how we did it. And we did it, and we did it on a shoestring. And if you've been to Gary's factory, you probably have. You're still doing it on a shoestring to this day. Yeah, like on the, like on some of those '90s games, the artwork on the playfield isn't like as quite as clear or as as creating the four color process at the time. Again, it was how do you make the game still look good and, and reduce the cost? Um, but if you look at the games today, they're four color and they're beautiful, and it's like anything. There's R and D and R and D in process. So that was the early part of the of the of playfield four color process. But it was pretty good. It was still better than most stuff. So. Right. We learned. We learned as we went along. And a lot of it was cost savings. So much of what we did was how do we, you know, when, when your owner tells you cut your cost by 10% or you're, we're going to close you, you cut your cost. You figure out a place to, to cut it. Now, was there a, um, a, another kind of one-off during the 90s? Was there an Operation Desert Storm game, too? Oh, yeah, that was, again, that was a, a version of, oh, I don't remember, maybe it's Checkpoint or something. Uh, again, it was just we, you know, we had a lot of artists that wanted to come and all these big pinball artists. Sometimes we just gave them a raw board and said, "Go decorate it and let's see if you're any good." This is a guy that really wanted to show us he wanted to be a pinball artist, and honestly, the art was pretty crappy. And you know, it was it was probably a game done in exceptionally bad taste. You know, we didn't want to have anything like that out there when kids came home in body bags. So, all right, know. all right. Again, sometimes it's just a creative outlet. Okay, is there any stories or anything that I forgot to ask you that you want to add? Well, you know, just my favorite story is probably Gary Stern when we were getting our very first game, our first Laser Wars, ready to show in that New Orleans trade show. And our operating system wasn't working, and Gary's walking around. I don't know how his socks got wet. He's walking around with his socks and taking Zantac and whatever it was, and he was having a pretty big flare-up of indigestion, going, oh, my God, my kids are never going to be able to go to college. I won't be able to afford it if this thing fails. I mean, we were even contemplating screwing posts in front of the holes just so the ball didn't go in it and get stuck. But I kind of laugh back at that now. And I remember I, probably the, the, the funniest thing was Gary really didn't quite understand um, at the time South Park. And he and I had a gigantic fight over Mr. Hankey. I remember him going, there will never be a piece of crap on a game. And I said, yes, there will be. And I screwed a baby Ruth bar to a game, and it was kind of funny. It was our, our, I guess we'll call it our um, our uh, Caddyshack moment. But uh, Wait, you actually screwed a baby Ruth bar to a game? Yeah, that was Mr. Hankey at first. But uh, he and I fought over that. But, you know, Gary and I were great partners, and uh, I love him tremendously and uh we had a lot of great times together well what licenses did did you get that gary really did not want other than that one well man magazine was one and you know we weren't sure on a couple along the way but you know 
you know, there, we, we fought over South Park a lot. He didn't want South Park at all. But I think in the end he was pretty damn happy we got it. And he wasn't too sure of The Simpsons at the time, too, because the time we did Simpsons it was still on just a, a thing on the Tracy Ullman show. It wasn't even its own TV show. Hmm. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Now, why didn't you go through with the Mad Magazine? Um, again, I think Gary was very, very concerned that um, the, the game uh, would not work in Europe, and he would limit his sales. And because of that, we, we killed it. But that could be said of a lot of titles. I mean, Michael Jordan, does he work in Europe? Oh, sure he did. Sure. Remember that Michael Jordan was at the time where Michael Jordan was over the Olympics in Barcelona, mm. taking the world by storm. Guns N' Roses, does that work in Europe? Sure. Sure it did. Okay. Royal, Royal, Royal Rumble? Absolutely. The numbers were huge in Europe. Baywatch? Most popular TV show in the world. More Chinese watched it than anything, and David Hasselhoff, if you remember, was an international star. <laughs> Starship Troopers? Well, you can't be, all, be right all the time. It's all pretty cool sci-fi movie. <laughs> I knew I'd catch on one, huh? Yeah. <laughs> was there a lot of difference between, like, you know, the, the white, or the, the prototype or sample run of games and actual production games? Any game that ever had a tremendous difference was Tommy. Tommy originally had six pop bumpers on the ball drop from the, from the airplane and a bunch of other things, but, you know, we got costs reduced. But normally, you know, things stayed pretty consistent. You know, a post move, the, you know, a ball trap was found, but, you know, we, we didn't have a lot of time to develop stuff, so it wasn't like, you know, you know, gigantic change. Right. The, the, the big joke at Williams is that the designers would always design, like, drop targets into the game so management could come around and axe them out. Yeah, we did that. You know, we, we always started with a, with a shaker motor, I think. That was our big joke. But, you know, every now and then it stayed. Yeah, now, what was the, uh, what was the origins of the shaker motor? Well, actually, we were doing the game, and I think Pat was doing the game at the same time. I think we all went... You know, it's kind of funny how, you know, we all go to the same trade show in Vegas, in Reno. And in Reno, the big show at the time used to be called Jubilee. It was at the uh, Reno Hilton, or maybe it was the MGM at the time. And the big show had the the uh, earthquake in San Francisco was replicated. <laughs> you know, I have a feeling we all saw the same thing at the same time and came home and said, well, wouldn't it be cool to shake a pinball machine? So, uh you know, I would probably say Pat got it on a machine first. I think we were all doing it at the same time. But uh, it was probably the genesis of it. Now, did you guys actually go to a company and, and have those made, or would you just take a motor and retrofit a counterweight on it? You put a, a, a shaft through it, and you had a, an off-camber weight, and it was enough weight to make a motor, uh, game shake. So there was something that you guys actually invented, so to speak. Well, I think we all did it at the same time. I think Pat got it first into production, but, hmm. you know. You know, who's counting? Tell me about the Batmobile. Well, it's a uh, original um, 1966 Batmobile, and uh, currently it's on display at uh, the Reno um, National Historic Automobile Museum. Uh, it used to be the Harris Collection, it's one of the most prominent museums in the world. As a matter of George Barris just came in about last uh, November and, and helped put it in the Hall of Fame for a while, so it'll be there for two years on display. Now, how did you come up with this? Well, you know, I, I always kind of thought it was pretty nifty as a kid, and um, a couple of years ago I thought it would be kind of fun to own one, and I, I heard, you know, had seen a few from time to time um, go up for sale, and 
I uh, just searched long and hard and found one that was in okay shape, needed a lot of uh, restoration, and uh, uh, sort of convinced the guy to give it up and spent about two years restoring it, and it actually has real flame that comes out of the back, and it's, you know, it's pretty cool. It's a lot of fun to drive around in. Now, how many are there? Well, that's that's debatable. You know, their original six were done for the show, but um, Barris had the molds, and, and his, he and his partner, I believe, uh, a fellow named Bob Betts, split up, and each one got a mold. And, you know, I think over the years there have been some babies. So um, uh, this one's based off of, a, you know, a 70s platform. You know, they, they took these around to different, you know, auto shows and motoramas and things like that. Yeah, I can remember as a kid when, um, uh, you know, the Batman movie came out, we went, uh, my, my parents took me down and, the, and, you know, Batman was there with the, with the Batmobile and it, it was, it was pretty cool. Yeah. So it's, it's in amazing shape. I mean, it's just fantastic and everything works, the flame and the bat phone and you know, all that stuff. Yeah, the way I heard about it is I heard that you went to Tim Arnold's uh, pinball party in Las Vegas in it. Well, you know, I had it down in Vegas. We were having a trade show in, in Reno, and I thought it would be kind of fun to, you know, cruise it on the Vegas Strip with some of our customers and some friends. And um, brought it down there, and actually my daughter lives there and was in her garage for a while. And we'll figure what the heck, they just drive it over to Tim's house and have a little, little kick with it. Now, did you drive it from Reno to Vegas? Oh, no, it was, it was shipped on a truck. I mean, it just... You know, it could certainly make the drive, but you just wouldn't want to have it uh, subjected to all the, you know, bugs and stone chips and all that stuff. Yeah, how does it drive? Ridiculous restoration. How does it drive? Does it drive like a normal car? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the steering wheel's a little funky because it's got that weird bat steering wheel and everything, but it's, it's pretty neat. How do they do the flame out the back? Um, the flame is propane, and it's pressurized, and then there's basically a spark plug in the, in the cone, and it's, you know, it's... It's, uh, it's a pretty elaborate setup of, uh, you know, metal sleeves and other things. And then there's a, a burst button that allows it to, um, uh, you know, burst a really big flame of about, up to about 40 feet long. 40 feet? Feet. 40 feet. So you better, you know, you got to be careful if people are standing behind it. And people are inherently pretty stupid, you know. They'll stick their head in the back and they'll put their head right in the nozzle and they go, light it up. So, you know. We, we have to exercise great caution and care. <laughs> All right, Clay. Well, thanks for your time today. And if I can ever help you or your listeners again, let me know. Yeah, I really appreciate the time, Joe. You had some good stories. I, I really, really do appreciate your help. Well, keep keep flipping. You know, there's still white, lots of life left in pinball. Okay. okay. All right. Take care, Joe. Thank you. Right. Bye. I'd like to thank Joe Camico for coming on TopCast tonight. And tell us about the origins of Data East. Really appreciate his stories. He had some uh, great tales to tell. Thanks again, Joe. Really appreciate it. And I hope everybody will come back for another episode of TopCast.